All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, this is a Tuesday episode, and let me apologize to the listeners because obviously when you're listening to this, it's not Tuesday. Um, <laughs> normally we record on Monday mornings. I was in New Orleans over the weekend for Jazz Fest. Uh, for those of you who are in New York, you know that there was a torrential historic rain on Sunday. I didn't make it back Sunday night. Missed our normal recording spot Monday morning, so we're recording this Tuesday morning, which means it goes up on Wednesday. Oh my God, that's so a, lot, for of, all that's a you, lot of information. For everyone whose Tuesday was ruined because there was no firewall to start your day with, I apologize. Um, so, uh, <laughs> very, very nice, Bradley. Here Thank you. with us is both uh, our usual guest and producer, Hugo Lindgren, and Corey Epstein, who the listeners know. Corey runs comms at Tusk Holdings, um, but has a deep transportation background. I want to do the episode today kind of different trends and stories in transportation, both in New York and around the country and world, um, because we just think that would be fun, and there's a lot happening, and Corey's got a lot of expertise, so I wanted to bring him in for it. Um, but given that the first Republic Bank news is is ha- happening right now, and given that our podcast is, is about tech and politics, um, wanted to th- kind of open up with right. that. Right. So I have, I have just one question, one basic question about this, Bradley, and then, and then we, we'll get to the transportation stuff. But... Um, so I guess the, the, what we've seen here is a, 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 a huge bank failure um, that had to be saved at the last possible second, um, a lot of anxiety, uncertainty. Um, what is wrong with our system for um, monitoring these things? Um, what do we need to do better so that the, the, you know, we don't have this risk of systemic failure but we also don't handcuff innovation and keep right. the sort of economy in, in, in quicksand. Yeah. I mean, I think right. So, so right now, I think both because the way that we do our media and politics is reactionary and we just point the finger at whoever we can blame for whatever disaster is happening at that moment. And because the majority of the media is pretty pro-Democrat, anti-Republican, most of the answer to that question has been, and I agree with, I actually agree with the substance of it, which is um, the stress test limit used to be that if you were a bank with more than $50 billion in assets, um, the feds would have to come in and really examine you rigorously to make sure that you didn't have the kinds of risks that SVB and FRB were taking that ultimately undermined depositor confidence and then led to a total meltdown. Um, so th- the issue is is the specific, you know, what that number should be. I guess the way that I want to approach this is a little less like should it be 50 or 250 or you know, Republicans are bad or this is bad, who's to blame? And more around just what should regulation be, right? Because ultimately, um, the way we do it now, like everything, is politics, right? So it moved from a $250 million billion minimum to $50 billion minimum um, because you had— It was re- the opposite. Yeah, it was 50 to 250. 50 to 250, right. Because yeah. you had regional bank CEOs and specialty banks like FRB and Silicon Valley Bank— donating to and lobbying Republican members of Congress saying, hey, our lives would be a lot better and easier if we didn't have to deal with this stuff. And they and Trump were able to push this thing through. So sort of the narrative right now is like bad, 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 evil, evil, evil. Um, But at the same time, if you made the limit $500 billion because you're AOC or whatever it is and you sort of all of your political resonance comes from you know, just being against somebody and something because that's what makes your supporters feel better about themselves. Um, that's equally the wrong way to do it, right? And so the regulation, as I understand it, really it's, it's behavioral economics, right? It, it should be how do we properly incentivize or disincentivize people, businesses, whoever it is you're talking about, 
to make the right decisions, right? And the goal is not ultimately to dictate their actions itself, because I think we believe, or at least I believe, that most good ideas, most innovation, most progress doesn't come from government. It comes from individuals uh, who then have ideas that can be put out there in the world, and the government has to sort of help usher them through. And so if you're looking at it and saying, if you take, for example, the, the, the bank thing, right? So you, you want banks to be able to offer services to depositors. You want them to be able to, because they're public companies, deliver returns for uh, their investors, their shareholders. Um, you want them to be able to make money because if they make money, they employ more people. And, and that's what this is about, is, is giving people opportunity and better lives. Um so on one hand, you don't want to tie their hands completely because then their ability to actually do all of that is significantly limited. Um, and as a result, you're kind of undermining things like job growth and creation and everything else. On the other hand, um, if you don't put some guardrails in place, then just because, you know, companies are, as Milton Friedman said, they're designed to generate returns for shareholders. That is the underlying purpose of a business, right? I know there's some discussion now. Um, that's changing that a little bit, and I think that might be for the best. But fundamentally, human nature is human nature, right? So just like on this podcast, we talk all the time about the human nature of politicians and that we can't expect them to make decisions that are not solely in their own political interest at all times. And as a result, we have to make the right policy choices, also their political interest. Um, <clears throat> same thing is true with capitalism, right? So you're First Republic Bank, you're Silicon Valley Bank. Um, your, your goal is to make as much money as possible. And um, you're always going to take the steps to do that whenever you can. And the thing that usually stops you is sort of, you know, the risk of going to jail or getting in trouble or whatever it is. Um, so you can't expect them to behave any differently. So you, you don't want to tie their hands so much that they can't actually grow their, their business and their bank and create jobs and, and wealth and everything else. Um, and at the same time, you also under, have to understand that, human nature is going to lead them to sort of doing whatever it is will generate sort of the best returns for themselves in the short term, um, even if they're putting the entire system at risk, right? And so the question is, if you have regulation that is solely designed to move at the margins, human choices and behavior, that's what you want, right? Because then it's, it's neither completely crippling innovation and sort of just overwhelming businesses with regulation, which is why, by the way, places like New York and California are losing lots of jobs and businesses because the amount of, of regulation is overwhelming to the point where it's not really worth being here for a lot of people. Um, and at the same time, if you just let leave them to their own devices, you know, they make really irresponsible decisions and systemic bank failures happen too. And so the question I've been just asking myself, and this is the very beginning of this kind of thought examination for me, and one that I think we can talk about going forward, both uh, me and, and Hugo, but also with, with guests, is um, are independent regulators ultimately the better play, right? So the, the Federal Reserve, for all of their flaws, generally speaking, they're not that influenced by politics. In fact, you know that often because, like, Trump would always rail against Jerome Powell because Trump would want Powell, for example, to cut interest rates to stimulate economic activity, which then helps you get reelected. And Powell was and his board were making decisions that they thought were best for the economy. And, and I think their independence is understood and generally Trump notwithstanding, accepted and respected. Um, so I'm wondering, what if the SEC reported to the Fed? Or what if they were an equal agency? Um, now, look, the Fed does technically report to Congress, so they can't not report to 
anybody, um, but but they're basically run in an apolitical, independent way. Um, should all banking regulation be like that? Is it that the risk is too great on either side politically, on the Republican side, to want to reward donors um, and really remove regulations, or on the Democratic side, try to you know motivate higher left wing turnout by just bashing the banks and going after them, like you see someone like Elizabeth Warren doing all the time, and take it out of their hands completely um, and say that this is just going to be a completely independent agency and process. And yes, there is some very, very high-level reporting um, to Congress, and obviously Congress can still make laws, um, but is that independent model ultimately better? That's the question. I'm not sure what the answer is because, look, you can look at what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank and say, it was the change in the asset limit that really led to all these problems and had politics not intervened and changed the asset limit, this wouldn't have happened. That might be true. On the other hand, um, the Fed still had, you know, tools to review what Silicon Valley Bank, for example, was doing. And the San Francisco Fed had at least some awareness of some of the risks that SVB was taking. And they didn't actually um, act significantly enough, right? They, they, they wrote some reports. They, they took a little bit of action. So you could argue that the Fed had the power to deal with this, and they failed, and therefore the independent agency model doesn't really work. Or you could say that had politics not intervened, um, you wouldn't have had this problem in the first place. So I, I don't know the answer, but here's what I know. Systemic bank failures are really fucking bad, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And ultimately, I understand that everybody wants to win the elections and everybody wants to get retweeted as much as possible. And politicians exist because they desperately need validation and affirmation. And they have these, you know, self-loathing tendencies that have to be countered with that. Um, but uh, I do think it's worth thinking about, you know, is there a way to recalibrate financial regulation that um, isn't either then just a total sieve that just like there's there's no you know checks and balances at all or you know this these handcuffs that are just designed for political purposes that, that destroy the economy. It, it does seem just uh, on a on a um, kind of vibe level that the the uh, the interest in in Washington politicians and creating more independence for any arm of government is low, right? Like that- Sure, people who have power keep, right. like to keep and, and power. And it seems like, in fact, things like the Supreme Court or, as you mentioned, the Federal Reserve are actually being more politicized these days. I mean, I guess it's hard to know in terms of the arc of history because it, it, it comes up again and again. But but the, but the you know, politicians putting their thumbprint on, uh, on everything seems to be the- the trend, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look. So if you look at the court, uh, look, the process of being confirmed to the court and nominated to the court um, is extremely more politicized than it used to be. Although, I mean, that really changed. Look, again, it's easy to talk about how terrible Kavanaugh, Comey, Bryant, and all of them are. It really started with Bork. I mean, the, the right. Democrats really did it to the Republicans when, when was it Reagan or Bush that nominated Bork? It was Reagan. Reagan, right. And then all of a sudden, sort of these cultural wars started, and it never stopped after that, still going. And now we have courts that are ideologically and proactively looking to do things like overturn Roe v. Wade um, for political reasons as opposed to judicial uh, analysis and logic. And so, yes, we, we do have that problem. Again, listeners are here, tired of hearing me talk about this, but it gets back to mobile voting, right, which is when the only inputs that matter to politicians are winning primaries because of gerrymandering and when primary turnouts typically 10 to 15 percent and the voters are the most left-wing or right-wing typically, they demand moral purity and they only want you nominating judicial candidates who are active ideologues, right? Um, 
And that then leads to that's who gets nominated. Some of them make it through the confirmation process, and then they sort of govern. They 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 the the judicial governance jurisprudence um, reflects that, right? Um, if you had primary turnout that were thirty or forty percent because we could vote on our phones and it was a lot easier, um, that would mitigate the influence of the extremes on either side of the aisle, and you would have judges that therefore reflect that by being more centrist and moderate and just less proactive and ideological, um, and that would lead to a different type of jurisprudence that would therefore make the judiciary more independent. Should we talk about transportation? Sure. Um, so uh, we can welcome Corey back into the... Well, have you said Hi, anything Corey. yet, Corey? Take no, no, I haven't said anything yet, but I, I'm, I am ready. I have the Sunday Times in front of me. There was What's in the Sunday Times that you're looking well, at? Well, there was the Metro column by Ginia about Vision oh, right. Zero, but then there right. was also in the opinion section, American road deaths show an alarming racial gap. So there was a lot going on uh, in the Sunday Times. But it's also timely because you see uh, the Met Gala last night, I, David I, Byrne and the, and the bike. What he did came he do? in. He came in with his bike. He did. I guess so. He have, just rode into the who, Met. In who, his bike? who are we talking about? From the Talking Heads. David oh, David Byrne. Byrne. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. So uh, I guess I guess they have secure bike parking at the Met Gala. Oh wait, he just biked. He biked. To the Met. He just like no, parked he, it next to the Van Gogh. No, no, no. He he. <laughs> I am assuming he biked there, but then brought it on the carpet, like up yeah, to where all to the dogs were. Just put it were. there between the Medigliani and the Renoir. But yeah. yes, and does he have a nice bike? I bet he does. It was a good bike. It was sort of like ivory colored, sort of matched his cool suit it was it got me it got is me he going still dating saint vincent oh i don't know oh curious yeah um, i mean the whole mecca thing is funny right because there's this at the, i didn't see you there bradley yeah i couldn't i i, I, I couldn't i want to watch the the sixers celtics game last night instead <laughs> um the uh it is funny right in that there's this massive sort of activism against the elites and the rich and everything else, and yet also this absolute obsession with them. And AOC, when she got the chance to go to the Met Gala, jumped at the opportunity yeah, to yeah. manage to violate right. the Congress all kinds of Right, and so it's, it's funny that like we love to hate certain things, and there are things that we hate because ultimately we're not included in them. And yeah. if we were, we well, I'm not included in it, and I don't hate jump it. At it. So I like there you go. You're, yeah. you're you're the outlier. Um, so uh, Corey, let's talk about the the, the column you got in front of you. This is like, it's funny because everyone talks about crime all the time and, you know, how, how everything's going to shit. Um, but then we have this, like, something that truly affects all New Yorkers. If, like, if like literally crossing the street or riding a bike or driving a car in, uh, in New York City is more dangerous, that's, that's just bad for every single New Yorker, no matter what neighborhood you live in. Um, what is going on? Why is it getting worse? And what is the... What is the what are the even the policy ideas that we should be talking about that like are are somehow off the radar screen? Well, something that Ginia pointed out, and I used to work for some background at, at City Bike, I've mentioned on other podcasts. Then I worked at Transportation Alternatives, which is the longest running, you know, safe streets, public transit, bike, bus, etc. Advocacy group here in New York City. They're turning 50 this year. Um, so this is something that I've worked in a lot for a long time and uh very, very ex happy and excited by what I used to do, but I'm very happy to have taken a big step out of that work because it's hard. We, you're dealing with yeah. you're 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 dealing with you're dealing with injury, death, violence on a day to day basis. Right. You're getting a you're getting a press inquiry. You're getting uh, an elected official reaching out and saying someone has died. What are you saying about that? And that's a totally different type of of comms than I work in here now, and it's a totally different type of comms than. Something like City Bike, where it's like, hey, we have a free ride day, or hey, we're introducing an e-bike. So it's tough. So it was 
great to do. It's a passion of mine, but I'm glad to have moved on. And what Ginia pointed out in the Sunday Times was Vision Zero started, I think, nine years ago. And last year, there was one less death than the year it started. Explain what Vision Zero is. So Vision Zero uh, started in Scandinavia, and it's basically the concept that every you know traffic crash is preventable and that it's like any other public health crisis. You can do policy interventions and get that down to zero. So what is the number? What was it last year? It was uh, 273 or something. Uh, okay. It was, it was, and it was, was one, it was one, one more than it was. Than nine one, one less, one less. And so, had it gone down and then it went back up? So or? basically what happened was it came here in, um, when de Blasio was running for mayor the first time, he actually championed this. I know we critique him. A lot. Well, it sounds like he fails. I don't think was, the word is critique. I don't think that's what the, the no, word we, 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 we more bash. bash. <laughs> okay. I haven't yeah. bashed, but so the, the history is that it came over. Um, it came over from Scandinavia to New York City, and he really championed this during his first campaign. Uh, and it was basically the activists and parents who had lost their kids in crashes. But, but what did he do? Him. Like, what, what was the so, actual so policy? So when he became mayor, very early on, I mean, most New Yorkers know about Queens Boulevard, which was the Boulevard, Boulevard death. death. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he very, very quickly, after he became mayor, said they're doing this big overhaul of Queens Boulevard to turn it from the Boulevard of Death to Boulevard of Life. So this meant shortening the crosswalks, adding protected bike lanes, adding more crosswalks, different uh, turn signals. And, and did it work? And it worked. It did. It worked. Like, if you look, I think for maybe five years, four or five years after they redid this, there was no deaths. There have been deaths since, but it was something, I mean, Bradley, you probably remember from City Hall days, it was, there was dozens of deaths, tens of deaths. Yeah, there was a period where it was like, it just felt like endlessly, like the front page of the Daily News every day was Boulevard of Death. Yeah. And someone else was And it worked. It worked. Like, there's, there have been some deaths, but it's one, two, three. So they've cut the deaths there, but the deaths have risen somewhere else. And so what happened was when de Blasio started... The crashes and the, the the deaths went down. They really did, and then they started going back up. If you look at the graphs, like there really was a demonstrable decrease in the deaths on our streets. And then right before COVID, they did start going back up again. Uh, and then during COVID, what was pretty crazy was the first few months, I don't know, March to June, maybe, there was like no deaths. Well, on New York City there, streets because there's no, there's no, there's there's no cars. Yeah, exactly. There's no cars. Yeah. Um, and then suddenly... Perfect. Uh, Problem solved. And then suddenly uh, everything shot back up and it has and the former mayor didn't have it under control. And uh, I think they just they just saw uh, they just uh, I think (laughs) T.A. just released um, some new some new stats saying that the first few months of this year was the deadliest uh, for people on bikes, people on bikes ever since the stats have been recorded. So, we were, so right, brother's asking why. What's what is it? Well, there's way more bike so riders. I think, so, so that, right? It's yeah. not even. I mean, there's a few differences. There's a few issues. One, when Vision Zero started and De Blasio was focused on it, and it, he had, uh, he was managing it and was actually dictating to the DOT, "Hey, do this for Queens Boulevard. Do this for other places." You saw that things worked, but like many other things, he got distracted by. I don't know if it was running for president yeah, right. or running for whatever. Oh, I didn't and, take that. And he was also under like seven yeah. different federal corruption investigations. But I think what we saw Plus was he had Bradley Tusk on his ass. <laughs> when you <laughs> actually the blood's on my hands. <laughs> when you actually do things like uh, make a crosswalk shorter, 
when you maybe remove a lane of traffic so people have to drive slower like they did on Queens Boulevard, like it actually works. The problem was that the former administration just did not expand that to other, whether it's Grand Concourse, Atlantic Avenue, but all why, of these but other. Why? I mean, okay, so, yeah. so de Blasio's incompetent. Everyone, yeah, yeah. Every, literally everyone except de Blasio would agree with that, right? Um, but still, there's a huge number of people working at City Hall. DOT mm -hmm. has thousands and thousands of employees. It just never occurred to anybody else to try to expand it. Think about how many times you've seen, you know, something on a local blog of, you know, DOT, your elected official goes to their community board and says, we want to add a bike lane here. And then it's true. It is. Cr I had to stop watching and going to community board meetings because they are so vitriolic to totally. and they are so. And if you and if you always talk about every you know policy output as the result of a po political input, right? Um, it really is the case here when you have the most base level oh, yeah. uh, things like uh, adding an open street by a school, adding a protected bike lane, and when when you are faced in a room with people people screaming at you, even though they are not representative of your of your district. Uh, it is scary, and yeah. it's going to ca cause sure. people to back down. Look, when I ran my reelection in '09, the single issue that, like, when I would go seek endorsements to support from different groups that I would get the complaints about were the bike lanes. Yeah, I fucking hated them. And it's, I hate them. <laughs> Why do you hate them? Because it, it's funny. It's just like as a lifelong New Yorker, it, it it's still like it's hard to know. Like to step off the curb and look at the bike lane. I realize we should learn. Like I'm not against bike lanes, but like I do hate them. You know, I I, I find them to be a hazard, and I understand that they're they're good and necessary for the future of the city, but it takes a lot of getting used to. So I understand the um I understand that. All right, so Corey, what, what's the solution? So, <laughs> I mean, the the solution here. Think about it this way: when COVID happened uh, and the vaccine happened, they said, "Here's a public health crisis." The vaccine works. We're going to how many how many vaccine pop-ups did they have across the city? It was like you couldn't walk one foot and find a vaccine pop-up. Almost like an illegal weed store now. Almost <laughs> like that. It was it was every you it was everywhere. And I actually the, think there's more illegal weird weed stores. And the the, the question is did when the city or the, the feds or the state were opening up these vaccines, did they go to community boards and say, Hey community board, can right, we add it? Okay, but we can't open a pop-up bike store. That's not what you're saying. No, no, so but, what I, but what I'm but what I'm saying is that the city here, they they have the toolbox that works. Right. If they have a public health solution, like you know, adding better crosswalks, making the traffic go slower, why do they go to a place like a community board where they're going to get shouted at when but they have a solution that works? They didn't do that for the vaccine. They didn't ask permission. Let, right. Let they me, should just so do stuff. Let me ask you a, a bigger question. Yeah. Why do community boards? Why should they exist? If you think about it, so it's a great question. People who great are great question. I think sort of see themselves as well-meaning people, but what happens? Um, affordable housing gets blocked consistently. Um, charter schools get blocked. Bike lanes get blocked. All these things that Restaurants are get blocked. Progressive concepts, yeah. right, that don't happen because everyone is for change as long as it doesn't affect them in some way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it would be great if some mayor uh, were to run a charter campaign to just eliminate the community boards entirely. Yeah, and it's it's. Is that something that ever came up in the Bloomberg? Years? No, and we ran. I ran Mike's Charter Vision Commission uh, in '02, and and we passed a bunch of things, but that was never on the table. I I think it is seen as so. You would what you'd have to be able to do is because everyone who is on the pro community board side will turn out because they right, always they're turn super out. That, engaged. Yeah, that that's who they are. Right. So you'd have to generate massive turnout. Um, you'd certainly have to do it in a 
election year that's already going to, you have to do in a presidential campaign, right? So one of, like, I remember when Mike, I was already in Illinois at this point, but tried to do nonpartisan elections and just got destroyed. It was like 70, lost like 40 points or something like that. Part of the reason why is he did it in a year where there was literally nothing else on the ballot. So the only people who showed up were people who showed up to vote against it, right? Right. Um, that old trick. So, so you'd have to do it in like a, a presidential election year and then it's Corey tell us there's all kinds of different, you know, on years and off years with city council terms mm -hmm. and mayoral terms and everything else about the city charter. But yeah, you, you could do, look, you could arguably say, uh, a friend of mine has been talking about this a little bit, like a, a platform of get rid of the scaffolding. Uh, she would argue get rid of the restaurant sheds, you know, get rid of the community boards, like basically a beautification plan uh, for New York City. Um, maybe that would work. I like the sound and, of it. And but let's let's talk about some of the fun stuff on transportation. Not, yeah. I mean, we. Can, I think we, this. I I think this. I well, think this traffic stuff is deaths are not fun. But traffic the, um, deaths isn't fun. I, I mean, I mean, fun like robo taxis. So um, yeah. I, I put those on. Well, our, by the way, it, it fits right because yeah, well, ultimately, fit. human accidents are traffic accidents are caused because of human error. Right? People are human. Right? I'm a terrible fucking driver. So like, I get that. And if ultimately, I understand that technology is not all the way there yet, but it's getting there. Now you're a suburban bred kid. Like, how in the world did you grow up to be a because bad Because I was young for my grade, so it was a short oh. period of time from when I had to turn 17 until I left for college. And then in college, and then drive. I've lived in the city ever since. I know you have a car that goes fast too. So I, I do have a car that goes fast. <laughs> yes. It's Wow. So yeah. robo taxis. Um, so I circulated a story. I actually picked it up. I just want to give a little shout out to Packy McCormick, who I think yeah, he's, Pac, he's been on. He's right? been on the podcast. Yeah. But the work he's doing, that guy. I mean, the, the the quality and the volume of his output is just staggering. And so on Fridays, he does this weekly dose of optimism. He just has these cool stories that are obviously not you know depressing bad news about the collapse of the technology um, uh, empire. And he just did this little thing about, you know, Robotax is already being on the street in San Francisco, like something that like, you know, like kind of incredible, like the future is here. Like, and um, I guess the question I was going to have for you, Bradley, is what, when do we get Robotaxis in New York City? Um, we certainly could. And the difference is the New York City governance structure of taxis and livery cars is very different than everywhere else in the country. And so everywhere else, basically... Uh, you know, if a regular person wants to drive, you know, their Toyota Corolla uh, for Uber, they can basically register it and do so. In New York, you need an actual license itself from the TLC. Um, I would imagine that the cars, the, the vehicle, even if there's no driver, the vehicle would still need a license from the TLC. So who would oppose it? Um, certainly taxi drivers and the Taxi Workers Alliance would oppose it. Everyone on the left would oppose it. And given that the, again, because political outputs, inputs, and policy outputs, um, it would take an Uber-like campaign where you have to effectively mobilize real people who normally don't vote in city council primaries and things like that to weigh in to be able to kind of overcome the entrenched interest opposition to it. But if we ultimately had autonomous vehicles, cars, and trucks at scale, we would have a lot fewer traffic deaths. Corey, what do you think? I think yeah, Corey, does, does the transit activism world, do they like robo-taxis? Do they like autonomous vehicles? I think they really don't because I think that uh, many people, whether they're a bike advocate, a bus advocate, pedestrian advocate, safe streets advocate, are really trying to think about solutions that are not cars. But I do think, Bradley, from the political strategist point of view, the robo-taxi industry, whatever you want to call them, they could probably 
working hard enough could make the safe streets argument and could try to see if they could get the safe streets groups, some of which are, are influential and people are very engaged, to come around and say, hey, we'd rather have this sort of more high-tech vehicle that's potentially safer right. than like the people who are driving around with ghost pl ghost plates, unlicensed cars, or cars registered yeah, in Pennsylvania vans, that are right, getting totally. 50 well, uh, speed right. zone speeding tickets every month. Right. So that's, so San Francisco, what, as I understand from the article, they're letting crews do it between the hours of like 10 p.m. and 5.30 a.m. Um, and so I would imagine there's a decent amount of data that would show, if we're using New York City's example here, more accidents, more kind of bad taxi drivers, liver drivers, everything else, and therefore... Um, this would be the time to experiment to try to start. And if those rates reduce because of it, you then have an argument to start expanding it. Sir, yes, certainly. Or do you, or do you start it uh, in outer boroughs? Do you think about it? Do you, you could. Think, could I mean, uh, if, 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 you, if you assume that the streets are safer to drive in there, I'm not sure that that's true. I mean, one reason, it's funny. So I, I wear my seatbelt like most people. But when I don't, it's generally if I'm in the backseat of an Uber driving in Manhattan, not on the FDR or the West Side Highway, it's because like, we're going like eight. Yeah. Right? What the fuck's going to happen? Nothing. Um, now, watch, go slower. watch me like now <laughs> no, get it is to a good. terrible accident. Uh, but um, so or, is Manhattan the most dangerous or the least dangerous place to well, try? Well, could it? you? Uh, Manhattan is Manhattan is. Safe. Manhattan is Manhattan right. is safe because cars are going slower. Right. You know the that, the, the, yeah. the safe streets groups have been trying to get Albany to pass for since I was there. You know three years ago, uh, a bill to let the city set its own speed limits so they could go from twenty five to twenty. Manhattan is much much safer because there is frankly more congestion and you just have to drive slower. You have a lot more outdoor dining. You have to be more cognizant of where you're going. It's really like those arterial roads and like. Queens, Bronx. Brooklyn, BQ um, Cross Bronx. Those are the not even high, not even highways, but the, it's not highways. It's more like um, those busy arterial streets that are sort of highways, but sort of go through a, a neighborhood, like Atlantic Avenue, Eastern Parkway. I mean, if you look at this map from the uh, the Times, the, the American Road that show alarming racial gap, there's a map of L.A., Philly, D.C., New York, and it um, bolds or or highlights in greens the neighborhoods where there's more more traffic deaths. And it's frankly and sadly just every other map you've seen of New York. It's where higher percentages of people of color live. It's a, and it's exactly right by like Conduit. Uh, it's it's right by Empire Boulevard. It's you know. So, all so those... if your goal were to show an immediate reduction in accidents through robo taxis, where would you start? Gordon? Well, could you make the argument too that the robo taxi industry is is going to also provide more transit connections or or more um, more access to transportation like Uber did back in the day? You know, people in the outer boroughs. Do you want to start it in right. the outer boroughs? Well, that was the and, argument on electric scooters. And do you want to do you want yeah. to start it in the outer boroughs to say these people have been uh, have been starved for access, so we're going to start it there? And maybe you know, starting on Staten Island, where traffic patterns are more normal than you know a chaotic Manhattan street, is allows them to do more testing, allows them to you know find a more captive audience where the uh, progressive left and the safe streets groups might not be as 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 loud. I'm thinking about, for example, Staten Island, um, but at the same time, there's much less business there. <laughs> What's the economic and, and financial case there that they, would the industry actually want to start in a place that's much less dense? And right, less you know, you know, yeah. you're coming to Manhattan first. That's just happening. Um, well, scooters, scooters did not. So scooters went the other way. They're still right now in. Certain neighborhoods in the Bronx, and, and I think maybe expand a few other boroughs now, um, but not Manhattan. Although the argument 
against scooters in Manhattan is a much better argument than the argument against robo-taxis. Right? Scooters is just human beings now adding this extra measure of chaos. Yeah. I nearly died so many times on a scooter in, in Venice. I had to stop taking them. Venice, California. Yeah, I don't even try. And dumping them on the sidewalk where we have much more Correct. congested sidewalks. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, it made, we were supportive of and, and kind of helped pass the laws to, to do it that way right. in, in New York. Um, so I don't know that it's a guarantee the robo-taxis start in Manhattan, but I think to Corey's point, Conversely, it's not the logical thing. It's not your first thought, but it actually might be the, the safer way to do it. Okay, two more transit nuggets. Um, there was an argument made in Hellgate, that uh, online news site by Amos Barshad, who I think I used to work with years ago. Um, he was arguing that city bikes should be free. Um, why is this a good idea or a bad idea? I'm going to ask you, Bradley, first, and then we're going to go to our transit guy. Well, so as I understand it, they should be. he's saying city banks should just pay for it. Right. Yeah. Well, because they're such a rich, powerful company. Right. Um, but I think let's let's take that out of the equation and say, I mean, I guess the, the the truth is they get the branding thing. So yeah, they have to expand their 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 subsidy of the or, or their advertising footprint on the service. Yeah. If if they think it's worth their while. I and mean, right now you have the opposite problem, which is businesses keep leaving New York because taxes are too high, regulations are too high, everything else. They're not lining up to ask, how can we spend more money for the public good? <laughs> um, and so, you know, yeah, the hundreds of thousands of people that Citibank employ, uh, employs, including uh, tens of thousands here in New York City, if you'd like to lose all of those jobs, we, we right, can right. make them pay Let, for Citibank. I, I think that's a good point, but let's look at it just in the idea that, like, Fine, just for we you. like bicycles and therefore they should be free to citizens. So I, I guess if you believe that a significant increase in usage of city bikes would lead to better mass transit outcomes, would lead to fewer more productivity, cars. fewer cars, all of that, then there's an argument to say that some money that gets spent in some other regard to transit could be used right. to subsidize city bikes. I think bikes. that's an interesting point. Instead, yeah. maybe. I mean, I feel like there's just data to look at that. Now, at the same time, we opened up this part of the podcast talking about bike-related deaths, right? So um, maybe it's not better. I don't, I don't know. And look, you can make... I've often wondered um, cultural institutions, right, which is... Could you make them free for all New York City residents, right? And then, you know, char the truth is, I'm not sure where the elasticity ends, but if entrance, if you're coming from another country and you're spending $500 a night in a hotel, whether entrance to the moment is $25 or $32, I don't know that it's going to deter you from going mm -hmm. there, right? And so as a result, you know, could you basically raise the cost for all, you know, by the way, tourists from all over the world, from Long Island, whatever it is, uh, and make it free for New York City residents um, because it could arguably improve quality of life, there may be a similar argument on city bikes. Yeah, I think, the, I think the bigger question as we think about what the future is and whether what is that portion of New Yorkers who still haven't written it because uh, of the cost, I frankly think the bigger issue, when I worked at City Bike, I said, oh, I work at City Bike. People said, oh, I'm afraid to ride a bike. The bigger issue is, I think there's a much bigger... Yeah, I, I don't know how to ride a bike. There's a much bigger... You, you, no, yes, you do. I don't. Okay. There's a much... But, I mean, you're not good at it, but you know how. I learned how when I was a kid. Okay, wasn't so good know. at it, but I have... Once I, you learn, they say... No, it's but it's not. So right. I, I tried and crashed a couple of years ago. Were you alone or with your children? <laughs> I was at, I was buying my kids' bikes in um, some Poughkeepsie, the Pleasant Valley, New York. And the guy convinced me to get on one of these like electric bike type things, mm -hmm. and I crashed it like into my own car. Right. Do you have parked. a desire to ever ride again? Fuck no. Okay. So the, the bigger <laughs> the bigger thing the bigger thing is that this is the, this is if you get deep into a firewall episode, this is the kind of like tr true value that we're 
so, that they discover. Well, I just I, I think it's I think it's Bradley's like like total candor about it. Like like I think I think if I didn't know how to ride a bike or a crash one, I might not tell people. But Bradley just like you know he's just like very upfront, very out there. That's why people listen to this podcast. I, I think it's the true. truth and nothing but. But the as, truth. We're, as, as we're seeing here, the bigger thing is not people who are not riding it because of the cost. People who are not riding it because they don't feel safe. So yeah, I think yeah. if you if if we lived in a city where you knew you know. Every few blocks, there was a protected bike lane. There was, you know, bike boulevards to get you from point A to point B. Um, that you didn't have to check, like, is this street crazy? Yeah, Although, you have to do this detour. Bikers. You have and, to admit and, that, And too. isn't having to, like, carry a helmet around a huge pain in the yeah. ass? Yeah, well, a lot I of people mean, don't. I mean, but, I, that, but that's even worse. I know. With the, no the, one carries a helmet around. The, 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 the issue is, I think... Until it's safer, you're not, it's, again, it's not the cost. Until it's safe, you're not going to get more people riding. And until the system, you know, can uh, serve the current riders, you know, plenty of people will tell you issues with the bikes these days. I think we should focus on getting the system right than, you know, getting tens of thousands of more people in to overwhelm it. One, one more, but I do, also we're going to have your recommendation at the end of this too. Oh, yeah. Bradley. But one more, um, uh, just because this is the best part of transportation is flying cars, obviously. For sure. Uh, Bradley loves them. We all love them. Someone um, wrote a novel about one recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're actually talking about that in your next podcast. So, flying okay. um, um, cars. Just one quick question. We'll probably come back to this. What's your time frame for flying cars? There's a bunch of companies. That we, I just found this this not great article on the internet um, that there are all these companies that are you know they have workable prototypes. Blah blah blah. So in 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 less dense urban areas. Yep. Sooner than you think. Okay, what's sooner than I think? Seven years. Seven years. But by the way, and flying so cars like really mean or well, they, they piloted. Could, they, they could be piloted. Could be autonomous. I mean, that just depends on. No, they on can't how, be piloted. They have the, to be autonomous. But but, right, but, but, but I think what they're basically going to be is like another version of the bus, right? For a long time, fixed right? it's not going to be fixed routes that can fit 30, 40. It's like those giant ski lifts you see sometimes that like 30, 40 people can climb in at the same time. It's going to be the like equivalent. Gondolas or the... But gondolas are still like for four or five people. There, there are some mountains that have like oh, mega... Gigantic. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's what it's going to be initially is, okay, here is another way to get people from point A to point B where if we can get the unit economics right and get the cost down sufficiently, maybe another way So it's a to... flying bus. Yeah. I think wow. flying cars for a long time are going to be flying buses. Okay. Effectively, I don't know why a flying bus just never occurred to me. It's, uh, it sounds the the it sounds oh the the, the, the you just jumping in the, your car somehow out of your apartment Jetson and, style that's Jetson style that's I feel like I feel like the first place we're going to see this is I don't know Dubai Abu Dhabi somewhere over there where that's they have where they have a lot, of a lot of money not a lot of density no, no community ports <laughs> yeah no community <laughs> boards <laughs> auto, yeah. uh, autocratic <laughs> regime yeah. yeah okay exactly. yeah totally so Bradley, Singapore let's let's, yeah. let's have your recommendation. Of the week yeah, a we'll, uh, TV we'll show on Netflix called The Diplomat. This is not sort of an obscure pick. I think it's the number one show on Netflix. Uh, stars Carrie Russell. She is uh, becomes the American ambassador to the UK in the wake of a, uh, a crisis, national security crisis. And it is a, it's about two things that make it really interesting. One, it's about kind of geopolitics and the White House and the prime minister and all that, media and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, her husband... Uh, was until recently on the show uh, a very, very high level, like celebrity ambassador, I guess, who's highly controversial. Um, she met him by working for him when he was the ambassador. Um, she worked, then gets picked by the White House to be the ambassador, but he then goes with her as the spouse. And it's about their relationship and whether you can have her coming into this new role, him trying to sit on the sidelines. Can it work? 
what's their marriage like? So it's a really interesting portrait of of a marriage. I mean, not the most realistic marriage in the sense that there aren't that many marriages where both people are U.S. ambassadors. But but nonetheless, um, it, the show is I think works really well because. You have the storyline of their relationship, which is interesting, and then you have the sort of geopolitical drama storyline, which is interesting, and they integrate the two really well. Thanks very much. Corey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. See you next week. Thanks.